did I not see this coming? Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Year of Polygamy podcast. I'm your host, Lindsay. Today we're going to have a kind of a fun conversation about some current events. Uh, This podcast has been requested by a lot of people and because we're dealing with the coronavirus and everyone wants to not think about the virus, we're going to talk about something completely different, something that's in the news right now, something that hopefully will make you think and explore some of the different theologies of Mormonism and possibly polygamy. So I think it fits on this podcast too. We're going to be talking about who I consider to be emerging Mormon fundamentalists, Chad Daybell and Julie Rowe and their movements. And in order to do that, I've brought back some people who've been following this very closely or following the theologies of people very closely. But first, say hello to Nathan. Nathan, I always get your last name wrong. Everett? (laughs) That's right. Perfect. Nathan Everett, who was who was on the podcast a couple episodes ago where we talked about Chad. Can you say hello, Nathan? Hi. Yep. Um, Nathan and uh, I live in Lehigh. been listening to your polygamy for a long time and uh, just became interested in the case when, when you, Lindsay, posted about it on Facebook, which just prompted me to do a little bit of poking around on Facebook. And I realized that I've got a bunch of family members who know the Daybells. And so that's when I started falling down on these rabbit holes. Yeah. And it's been so good to talk to you about it. And the episode that we did, a lot of people really enjoyed because it, If you haven't listened to it, it gives sort of a 101 on the Chad and Lori Daybell thing, which we're going to cover in more depth here. And so I've also brought on Jacob Newman, who I've known for a long time. He's a fellow Mormon studies nerd like myself, and he's been following Julie Rowe. So Jacob, can you say hello? Hi, everyone. I'm really delighted to be here. I've actually had Chad Daybell on my radar for a long time. I'm going to show some Mormon cred here. But when I was the assistant manager at Siegel Book, when it was Siegel Book and Tape back in the day... I read one of Chad Daybell's books, actually, his fiction book about the end of the world, and I had really followed his publishing company closely. And as a result, I came um, became aware of Julie Rowe, and I've really followed her very closely because I think she's a very fascinating figure when it comes to Mormon fundamentalism. And so I'm really excited to be able to share some tidbits about her and have a discussion about her as well. Yeah, I'm really excited to see what you talk about because we, Jacob's been really good to keep me updated. Uh, you've sent me some of her latest videos, which I think are really fascinating to watch. And and we can talk ab- about those in just a minute. But I also want to bring on someone new. Uh, her name's Lisa Heaton. Am I saying that right? That's correct. Lisa Heaton, who is also, she's actually, can I talk about your faith, Facebook group? Sure. She has a Facebook group devoted to following the Chad and Lori Daybell case. And these guys know their stuff. They know the ins and outs of this case. And so Nathan and I thought it'd be great to bring you on, Lisa. Can you say hello? Thank you. Hello, everyone. Um, The case caught my attention because of these interesting issues in Mormonism that it includes. Uh, When I was a teenager, I worked for a publisher and author named Dwayne Crowther, and he is a kind of like proto-Chad. He had his own publishing company, publishing really apocalyptic and visions and next life type of nonfiction. And so now I've learned that Chad has cited Mr. Crowther and was influenced by him. And so I'm interested to kind of trying to tie together all the pieces of how this theology developed. That's fascinating. And I've been wanting to explore for a long time the connection between Mormon publishing and Mormon bookstores, especially in the Wasatch Front with fundamentalism, because a lot of bookstores, as we've covered on here, have ties to Mormon fundamentalism. Like, you know, I think I talked about Gustav Weller, who, you know, his son was Sam Weller, and they, he, he trained John Singer up in Mormon fundamentalism. John Singer is the guy that had the big standoff with the government (laughs) and was eventually killed. Uh, Pioneer Books, everyone, everyone has some, you know, interesting ties to Mormon fundamentalism. So that's interesting to hear that Lisa, you have yet another connection. So, uh, yeah, why don't we get into this? What I what I think we need to do is give a sort of background to people, and we're just going to assume that they don't know anything about this story. So we're going to talk about, about that for a minute. And before we get started, Jacob, I want you to give us basically a 101 
on who Julie Rowe is. And then Nathan, I'm going to have you cover Chad Daybell. And then Lisa, I've given you a sort of a hard assignment, but to give us sort of a timeline of Lori and Chad, let's just assume that nobody knows any, and all the listeners, nobody knows who we're talking about. So Jacob, why don't you start and tell us about Julie Rowe? Yeah. So I've really been following Julie Rowe pretty closely for a while now. I've started following her probably, if we all remember back in 2015 with the blood moon, if you're hearing bells in your in your head and you're thinking, okay, Julie Rowe, Blood Moon, End of the World, that's where it probably comes from. So to start off, I think it's only fair to read Julie Rowe's biography in her own words to start and then start to fill in some of the details from there because she really plays such a crucial role in this story. So this is from Julie Rowe's website. Uh, Julie has been married to her husband, Jeff, for nearly 20 years. They have three beautiful children, Ethan, Spencer, and Aubriana. She is the second oldest of 10 children. She was raised as a military dependent and has lived in several different places, Utah, Texas, California, Washington State, New Jersey, Hawaii, upstate New York, Northern Virginia, Kansas, Arizona, and Heidelberg, Germany. Julie received her Bachelor of Science degree from Brigham Young University in 1999 and her teaching certificate from the University of St. Mary in 2010. She loves camping and recreational activities with her family and attending her children's athletic events and music concerts. She also enjoys spending time with extended family and friends. She is an avid reader and loves learning about history, geography, science, and a variety of other subjects. One of her favorite things to do in the whole world is to do family history work. She enjoys meeting and talking to new people. Julie has has a passion for missionary work and a strong testimony of the importance of spreading the good word. She is very grateful for the tender mercies of the Lord and has been a recipient of many. She is very grateful for the blessing and opportunity she has been given to share her story. So the reason that I really wanted to start out with that is because that is so Mormon that you could practically put it in a chapel and you could see all of the lines and threads of Mormonism in there, tender mercy, mentioning her marriage. It's just really critical to understand her background coming from that. So some other key facts that you need to know about Julie Rowe is that she's actually a pretty prolific author. She's written several books, at least four. So, and like I mentioned earlier, she came to light in 2015 with her predictions surrounding the end of the world when it came to the blood moon. There was a lunar eclipse at the time. And she believes in her theology that this is actually based on a scripture, the blood moon, the lunar eclipse back in 2015 from Luke 21, verse 25. And so if you look on her website, you can discover that she actually, back in the day, uh, put this prediction up there and she has not removed it. Uh, But she says Luke 21, 25 points to specific events that are currently taking place and will take place in the future. So she says in this verse, it says, and there shall be signs in, in the sun, solar eclipse, and in the moon, blood moons falling on holy Hebrew days, because it's important to recognize that the blood moon at the time in 2015 was falling on a Hebrew holy day and in the stars and on the uh, 23rd day of September in 2017, we would have planetary alignment with revelation 12 signs in the heavens and upon the earth, distress of nations with perplexity. And ironically, she says here, this perplexity refers to a political figure, but she does not mention the political figure by name, the sea and the waves roaring. And this refers to tsunamis and floods and hurricanes And then she mentions that the eclipse on 8-21-2017 crossed the United States from Oregon to South Carolina, and seven years later, on April 8th, 2024, uh, there will be another total solar eclipse that will cross from the U.S. from Texas to Maine, and they will both intersect in Missouri. And this is so important from a Mormon perspective because we know that Missouri plays a crucial role in the second coming of Jesus Christ. So going back a little further, Julie Rowe had all of this prophetic calling, but this all dates back to her 2004 near-death experience in which she was shown a vision um, of the earth's present, past, and future. And the way that she describes it is she was greeted by an ancestor named John. And this ancestor showed her what was going to happen at the end of days. And some of the things that she had predicted are major earthquakes, which we're going to talk about in just a moment, tsunamis, famines, plagues, and wars as well. In her first book of Greater Tomorrow, she details a lot of that context for us. But then in her second book, The Time Is Now, 
She details the arrival of foreign troops in the United States and discusses how individuals from Russia, China, and North Korea will be landing on our soils. And I also think it is very relevant to mention her introduction um, from her book. And this is actually from A Greater Tomorrow, her first book that she published. She expresses her gratitude to her publisher, Chad Daybell, who started Spring Creek Books and was her publisher for several years before they had their falling out, which we will discuss later in this podcast. Um, She says, I am also very grateful to and for Chad Daybell and his sweet wife, Tammy. Just FYI, for those who are unaware, Tammy has since passed away, and we will discuss that in the complex case that we're going to discuss in a moment. But she really says that he's a talented man and that she respects his his obedience and his revelatory, you know, experiences that he's had. She really respects that. So the other kind of thing to know about Julie Rowe is that she believes at some point the LDS church will have a call out to the faithful and the faithful will be called to these tent cities. And this really fits in with a worldview of doomsday preppers. So if you remember back in 2015 or 2014, there was a lot of interest in prepping. And this has kind of reemerged as we've seen with current events. Um, People were investing in gold. They were buying a lot of preparatory materials. They believe in this set of tribulations that will come to the saints, um, that there will be economic and other natural disasters that are going to be really challenging for saints and missionary work will be suspended. Basically, the world that we're living in right now is a dream come true for some of these preppers because we're seeing some of these things play out in real life. Julie Rowe also believes there will be tent cities and these cities will become cities of light that will usher in the second coming of the Savior, Jesus Christ. She has also mentioned extensively about a Wasatch wake-up earthquake in which she has been shown in vision that there will be a massive earthquake here in the Salt Lake Valley um, in which water will just start to gush forth from um, underneath the ground. She has predicted that it will be a 9.0 earthquake, unlike anything we've ever seen before. Another good piece of context to know is that in the context of the recent earthquake, she believes that that earthquake was the wake-up to the wake Wasatch wake-up. So for those of you out there who are listening, that one, just stay tuned to see rolls. We're in for another one here soon. So, so just really quick, the Wasatch wake-up, she thinks is preparatory to the big one. Is that what you're saying? So she said in her podcast that the earthquake that we recently experienced here in the Salt Lake Valley, what day was that? March. That was March 18th, I want to say. Is that right? I don't know. The whole week feels like it's been two months. So I know. <laughs> it was earlier this has week. been a hell of a decade. <laughs> yeah, it was the 18th. 18th. So yeah, the 18th. She says this was to tell people to wake up for the real Wasatch wake up. Oh, goody. Okay. (laughs) Because she believes that this is just to get people kind of really thinking about this. And she says, you know, the night before the the earthquake, her heart felt heavy. And she felt, you know, like she was just going to, she had just seen some things, but she was talking to the Lord and the Lord let her know that the wake up to the Wasatch wake up was coming. So it's also good to know that she in the midst of all this, she's very much catered to a LDS Mormon audience. But in 2016, when she released Tragedy from, from Tragedy to Destiny, she really made a pivot towards a more of a non-denominational audience, which I think is very interesting because it explains a lot of her theology as it develops and speaks to more kind of mainstream Christian fundamentalism. And we're probably going to talk about this in a little bit as well, but She became very involved in energy healing, which also, you know, that's not to be unexpected. As we know, in Mormonism, we have had a long connection to the magic world view. So this is a very much a natural extension of that. And we'll talk a little bit more about that in a little bit. She's offering consultations to people. She does energy healing over the phone and proxy sessions. Um, A 40-minute consultation as of March 27th, 2020, which is the date that we are recording this podcast, is a mere $130, just in case anyone is interested. She also does proxy sessions, which are not phone sessions, um, but where she does work on your behalf, which is interesting to also note. So Julie Rowe, when the Blood Moon stuff was happening, the LDS Church came out with pretty strong statements against her, and she was actually identified as spurious, a spurious material that was in... Uh, circulation by seminaries and institutes. And they said they warned people to not 
teach her experiences as church doctrine. And eventually, because of her interest in energy healing, because of her unwillingness to renounce some of her beliefs, in January 2019, she started meeting with her stake president in Kansas. And he is he was a medical doctor, and she was told, essentially, you have to stop doing these energy healings. You have to start to stop teaching a lot of these things. And she got into a spat with him and said, you know, I pray, pray before I give my energy healings and you would do a better job as a medical doctor if you prayed before that, uh, before doing your medical doctoring. And he did not like that to say the least. And so she later was brought before a court. Of course, she said, you know, I'm a revelatory woman. So I knew what was going to happen in the court. She was brought on charges of apostasy, teaching false doctrine priestcraft, and demeaning the good name of the church. And she was excommunicated from the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in 2019. Since then, it's been very interesting to watch her progress. She still has many devoted followers, despite some false prophecies. She claimed in 2016 that the Wasatch wake-up was imminent and that she would be flooded with media requests. That did not uh, take place. She also initially defended the Daybells, which we're going to get into into a little bit, but she claimed that Chad Daybell was a wonderful man and that, you know, the media had been misrepresenting him. And she later kind of backed up from that a bit. The other thing that is really important to know in the context of this case and also in the context of Julie Rowe is that she's involved with energy work. I think that's really crucial that you understand that because we're going to talk about that a little bit with the connection to Chad and Lori Daybell. But she's also is very, very attuned into global conspiracy. She mentions the Illuminati and the Cabal as part of um, a global conspiracy with puppet masters. She believes that um, these puppet masters are spreading these tribulations. Um, She mentioned the coronavirus, for example, was spread through soaps and preservatives. So that's something also interesting to know. I've been following her podcast for some time. She has her Eyes Open podcast and the Julie Rowe show where she talks about her revelations and multiple mortal probations, which are also is also something that factors into this whole case. Like I mentioned um, to Lindsay before we started recording, this Julie Rowe could be a whole podcast series. Like we could literally do a podcast deconstructing her podcast, one episode of her podcast, and it wouldn't even touch the surface. So that I think just is um, a good start on the context and we can kind of fill in the gaps as we continue the conversation. I think that was a really excellent outline. Thank you, Jacob. And one of the reasons I want to talk about her is, you know, it's fun to kind of joke and say, and say, oh, you know, this, this crazy person who believes these crazy things, but I actually am taking her quite seriously. She fell on my radar a few years ago once I heard that there was this Mormon prophetess, this, this woman making prophecies. And in the work that I do, and it's because of this podcast, I have met so many prophets. Uh, I'm engaged to two of them. It's my weird brag. But I've never heard of a female prophet. Well, that's not true. I have heard, but it's very, very rare. And so when I heard that there was a woman, an LDS woman, and at the time she was not excommunicated, she was still part of the LDS church, getting such a following, I started paying attention. And and I think I've said this to you, Jacob, her theology isn't necessarily stupid in the context of Mormonism. I mean, she has some, what I would say are, I got to be careful with this word, valid conclusions to some of the doctrine valid i would say logical conclusions logical doesn't feel right but to to mormon theology she she does some clever things and i think as we talk about chad and lori we're going to get into those and again it's easy to sort of laugh at her but i've had prophets on this podcast i've talked to a lot of prophets and i would say that comparatively <laughs> julie writes pretty good theology in my opinion what do you guys think about that I think with Julie, she she is a natural extension of the the kind of the fundamentalist movement. The thing that's really fascinating about her is that it's almost like there's almost a feminist bent to it somehow, which I think is often so missing from Mormon fundamentalist movements. I mean, she mentions in one of her podcasts, and we're gonna talk about this a little later, something about you know patriarchal energy, which she views as a negative thing, which is not something you would typically hear from a mainstream quote-unquote mainstream Mormon fundamentalist. I've been a Mormon feminist for a long time, trained up in in Mormon feminism. And I see a lot of Mormon women trying to rewrite theology that they think is harmful. So, for example, 
in LDS circles, if there's an interpretation of the temple ceremony that is really harmful to women or oppressive to women, uh, Mormon feminists have rewritten it to be more empowering. And, you know, that's comforting to a lot of people. I see Julie Rowe doing this similarly because she is making extensions for herself. Now, I asked Maxine Hanks about this. She's a, a Mormon feminist theologian. She doesn't really see any radical feminism coming from Julie's theology. She sees it as more Julie is using the tools that she can to extend her soft power. I hope I'm not misrepresenting Maxine's comments. She she just left a comment on Facebook when we were talking about this. But I do think that there's something worth paying attention to because it's very rare for Mormon women to sort of take up this mantle, but Julie seems quite comfortable with it. Anyone want to say anything on that? Yeah, I'll chime in on that. I noticed the same thing. Um, you think of this continuum of to the far left or more liberal Mormonism, far right fundamentalist Mormonism. It's interesting to see um, that a lot of this energy healing, for the most part, the practitioners are women. There are a few men who do it, but they feel it's a power that they have, that they're accessing Christ's power. And it's very analogous in many ways to the priesthood. And so it's interesting to see them kind of grasping this power and their ability to heal. While on the other side, you have ordained women or, you know, movements for ordination for women within the mainstream church. So I do agree with you there. A prophetess is rare and she really takes the reins and says she's doing it. And I've seen a lot of, I've been surprised how much heavenly mother doctrine I've seen um, in these, this particular fringe belief. I think they really are trying to, you know, God is male and female, and you need both of those. And they mention Heavenly Mother a lot, a lot, a lot more than the mainstream church does. So is it, tell me if this is the interpretation, and I guess this is why it reminds me of Mormon feminism, because there's an interpretation of temple theology, and I'm, I'm going to be careful what I say here, so I'm not trampling on anyone's sacred beliefs. But there's this interpretation that in the temple, when you go through the LDS temple ceiling endowment ceremony, that when they speak about the male or they speak about the female, they're talking about the male parts of ourselves, the female parts of ourselves. Everyone has a masculine and a feminine divine, and both of those parts are being displayed. That's sort of a Mormon feminist interpretation. And I see that in Julie Rowe. Is that a fair, am I reading her interpretation correctly that she believes everyone has the masculine and the feminine? I think that's hard, hard for me to say because I think we can talk about Julie Rowe in terms of kind of this, this feminist approach, but I think it's also difficult to extract her from the patriarchy because I think she must still feel some drive to the patriarchy somehow. And so I, I feel like, and I don't hear her talking about heavenly mother quite as much. I hear her talking more about, you know, this energy work and just, you know, the presence of the divine and like talking to the Lord. So I'm not sure if she, has that same kind of perspective because like I said, I feel like she, she is still somehow while she's trying to kind of break away from the patriarchy in some ways, I feel like she is still really rooted in that because of her Mormon upbringing. Okay. Let me, let me just give you one more question and then we can move on to, to Chad Daybell. But what about the idea of what Mormon women taking up healing and blessings we've talked about in this podcast, early Mormon women, put their hands on each other's heads. They did healings. They did sacred rituals. Mormon women, we know, are still doing that, especially in other uh, Mormon traditions. But Julie Rowe, uh, I would say her energy healing is sort of based on that same theology. Is that fair to say? I would definitely say that's fair to say. I don't know what everyone else thinks, but I think that she longs to be able to use kind of what she believes to be her gifts to bless other people. I think that I personally think Julie is misguided and I think that she can even verge on dangerous sometimes with some of her theology and some of her beliefs. But I think that she, there is a part of her that is sincere in wanting to bless and uplift the lives of others in the, in the way that she understands and interacts with the world. And the way that she can do that is by drawing on kind of this magical worldview that has been informed by her Mormon experience. Jacob, I think that that's good. And, and let's stick a pin in that because we'll come back to that later. But I want to shift gears for just a minute 
talk about Chad Daybell, and we're going to talk about how they all tie in in just a minute, but it's important for you to sort of familiarize yourself with these with these main players. So Nathan, why don't you tell us about uh, Chad Daybell? Uh, right. So, you know, we talked a lot about him last podcast. And so for, for more detail, I, I would definitely want to refer people, um, your listeners back to that previous episode. But this will just be a real quick down and dirty introduction to who he is. Chad Daybell is an author. He's a publisher of LDS-themed books. He's well-known, and he's also well-known in, in prepper circles. He's been called by some uh, a cult leader <laughs> and a prophet, but to most people who know him, he's just a, a normal Mormon guy, the same kind of guy that you'd see like in your in your church meetings or on the basketball court in the in the uh, cultural hall. So um, he was uh, he was born in Provo in 1968, which makes him about 51 years old right now. He attended high school in Springville. And he later attended BYU in Provo. He married his first wife, Tammy, in 1990, who uh, Jacob mentioned earlier. And they married in the Manti LDS Temple. After graduating, he worked as a copy editor for the Standard Examiner newspaper in Ogden, Utah. And he later spent some time working in cemeteries in Springville and Spanish Fork, Utah, among other jobs. But in 2001, uh, he and his wife, Tammy, founded the Spring Creek Book Company. And they, they published dozens of books per year through that company, including books by, uh, you know, people that, uh, that are, are, you know, celebrities, I guess, minor Utah celebrities, like uh, American Idol finalist, Carmen Rasmussen and University of Utah football star and NFL quarterback, Alex Smith. Uh, they also published dozens of Chad's own books. Um, so a very prolific author as well, um, as well as books by authors such as Julie Rowe, as Jacob mentioned earlier, and uh, Hector Sosa Jr. So many of these books focused on preparedness, as we've kind of been talking about, specifically preparing for the millennium when Christ is going to return again. Um, so, uh, and and that, that's obviously a very topical thing right now with with the virus that's been going around. Um, so I, I think so. Like Jacob said earlier, I think this is really is. It looks almost like a fulfillment of, of prophecy for for these guys, but you know specifically what they they really are preparing for the time that that Christ is going to come again, and it's it's a time when governments governments are going to fail, and when people are going to have to take shelter from invading armies and bunkers and campers with a year supply of food and stockpiles of weapons. See, so he's, he's also so Chad and Julie. Their relationship, Chad and Julie's relationship began when he saw a post from her on a preparedness website asking for someone who could publish her near-death experience. So years before, Chad had actually experienced a couple of near-death experiences in which he'd been able to interact with relatives on the other side of the veil. Um, So, and that's, again, that's a way that Mormons sort of describe the the spirit world. So he believed that these experiences had caused the veil that separates the mortal life from the spirit world to stay partially open, sort of giving him like a foot in both worlds, that, that this ability to sort of go between those worlds. Um, Chad is also a popular speaker for preparedness groups, like a group called uh, Preparing a People. He'd done podcasts with them and even with uh, podcasts with Lori Vallow, who, who he would later marry and who, who uh, Lisa is going to be talking about. So, so that, that, that's, a, again, in a nutshell, that kind of brings us up to about October of last year. On October 19. 2019, Chad's wife, Tammy, was found deceased in their Salem, Idaho home. Chad called her father that morning and explained that she'd gone to sleep in a coughing fit and she just, and she'd never woken up. She'd not shown any other signs of failing health. They'd been married for 30 years and she was 49 years old at the time. Okay. So, and Chad and Julie have worked together for a while um, in the same near-death experience publishing thing as you brought up. And Again, we're going to tie it all in together, but thank you for that, Nathan. Do you guys want to say anything about that before we have Lisa go into her timeline? Okay, Lisa, give it to us. You've been working hard on this, and I'm so excited to hear what what you've come up with because you guys have really followed this really closely. I'm excited. Okay, so I'll be talking quite a bit about Lori. Um, it's interesting to watch the trajectory of more of a follower rather than a leader and kind of how that came together. So one woman who was a live-in nanny with Lori when she was living in Hawaii said, if you want to know more about the way that Lori thinks, read the book Visions of Glory. Um, That's a book that came out in 2012. 
by a man named John Pontius. It was an account of a near-death experience by a man who used the assumed name Spencer in this account. It's 250 pages long. I mean, it's so in-depth about what he saw, and it was all accounts of the last days. The subtitle of it is One Man's Astonishing Account of the Last Days. And it has just these extremely detailed visions about wars and calamities and tent cities and uh, meeting in the conference center that Jesus Christ comes to in a three-piece business suit and with short hair and just very elaborate. Um, So I kind of wanted to look at how she got to that point, because once she was there, that's how she segued into following Chad and ended up in the situation that she's in today. So rewinding back to the beginning of her life, uh, Lori Cox, Giannis LaJoya Ryan Vallow Daybell was born in 1973 and grew up in Rialto, California, which is a suburb of San Bernardino. So it's inland from Los Angeles. She was the fifth of six children in a Mormon family. She had one sibling who died as an infant. The siblings were Stacy, Adam, Alex, Laura, who passed away, Lori, and Summer. And she was a cheerleader in high school, was described by classmates as smart and friendly. Um, One high school friend on her cheerleading squad said, being a Mormon, this is what I got from her. They already knew she was going to be a missionary for a couple of years and serve. And she planned to attend Brigham Young University in Provo, Utah. However, these plans did not come to fruition at all, and her life kind of took off on a trajectory that is not typical, really, for a Mormon woman at all. She had a short marriage right after high school, in, after she graduated in 1991. Um, after that ended, she moved with her family to Texas, where she remarried in 1995 and had her first child, a son named Colby, in 1996. That marriage ended and she was single. She was a hairstylist working in a hair salon. Um, During this time, her sister Stacy passed away, leaving behind a husband and a young daughter named Melanie, who, if anyone has followed the case, knows she's one of the players in the case that ended up following Lori to Rexburg. There's some speculation about whether the death of Stacy might have been a played a part in Lori becoming interested in the next life or seeking a way to connect with Stacy. Lori was living in Austin, Texas then in the late 90s, and she met a man named Joe Ryan at her salon. He converted to Mormonism for her, and after a very short time of knowing her and a short time of learning about the church, and then they married in 2001. And Joe Ryan's sister, Annie, reports that the marriage started off well. She says, they were just madly in love. I have never seen Joe that happy. And Lori and Joe's daughter, Tylee, was born in September 2002. However, that marriage soured shortly thereafter, and Joe Ryan filed for divorce in 2004. And they launched into a years-long and expensive custody battle over their daughter, Tylee. Due to allegations made by Lori on behalf of her children, Joe was only allowed supervised visitation with Tylee for a time. And after one supervised visit, Lori's brother Alex assaulted Joe with a stun gun. Alex would later tell one of Lori's friends that he had tried to kill Joe, but had failed. And this is kind of just a shadow of what was to come later. Alex did serve time for that and fulfilled probation. He His sentence went through deferred adjudication in Texas. I see a lot of people asking, how come he could still own a firearm? Because it was a felony charge. Um, It was not entered as a final conviction. And in the end, he did receive his rights to possess firearms back. And he was a known gun enthusiast. So in 2006, Lori married Charles Vallow, who, like Joe Ryan, had not been a member of the church. And Lori required him to get baptized so that she would marry him. He did that. And later he did receive his endowment in the temple and Lori is endowed as well, but um, it's not publicly known whether she was sealed to Joe Ryan or whether she was sealed to Charles, Charles Vallow or neither um, unless anyone else can chime in if they know more about that. 
Charles also had shared custody of two older sons who were close in age to Lori's son, Colby. They relocated from Texas to Arizona, where most of Lori's family had already moved. And in May 2012, a son was born to Charles's nephew and his girlfriend in Lake Charles, Louisiana. The baby was immediately placed in the care of its paternal grandmother and step-grandfather, who are named Kay Vallow Woodcock and Larry Woodcock. And after several months, Lori and Charles took over care of the baby and then began the process to formally adopt the little boy. And they named him Joshua Jackson Vallow, um, known by JJ. And the adoption was finalized in July 2012. JJ would later be diagnosed with special needs, including autism and ADHD. So everything's kind of proceeding normally at this point. Lori and Charles moved to Kauai in Hawaii and to start a juice bar chain that was kind of a branch off of a juice bar chain in Austin, Texas, where they had previously lived. And a secondary reason for the move was reportedly that Lori wanted to make it harder for Tylee to have visitation with her dad, Joe. Lori has been described as a fun and devoted mother, but she also exhibited over some of that time some possible mental health issues that were concerning to the court. She was ordered by court to have a mental health evaluation at one point. So up to that point, it's not really known whether she had any interest in these end times type of prophecies. She was described as a devout Mormon and did like to talk about deep doctrine. But while in Hawaii, it's known that she got into books like Visions of Glory, like I mentioned. These books can be really scary, in my impression. Um, They are about wars. There's troops invading the U.S., you know, terrible natural disasters that kill people and knock out all the infrastructure. And it can be really scary. And Lori would express things to friends like, uh, the last days are going to be so bad when it comes, we should just put our kids in a car and drive off a cliff. And at some point, she did start to read Julie Rose books before she ever got into Chad's that we've kind of already discussed, um, Julie. Now, a lot of people who are anxious kind of get into these books and it exacerbates their anxiety. And I kind of wonder if joining up with Chad gave Lori a role that solved some of that problem of anxiety, where if you're the major player who's a leader in these times of the second coming, then you're not going to be the one who's knocked out or doesn't have food or, you know, gets killed. So I just want to ask you a question about this. Is she, before she met Chad, was she developing any of this theology on her own? Or does it seem like Chad's theology really opened up the door for her? Do you know the answer to that? I know that she was reading these books and that she was starting to listen to podcasts. um, A lot of probably Julie Rose podcasts. And Julie has her own theology, the multiple mortal probations and Mike Stroud's podcast, where he talks a lot about how to have your second comforter experience and, um, you know, whether you're called to be part of the 144,000. But I don't see much of it as her original thought, as much as it's absorbing um, these teachings from these other people. She did it some point along the way before meeting Chad, and this is according to a friend of hers, she did come to believe that she had been translated and that she should be able to take off her garments because of um, being so far up that she doesn't need their protection anymore. So I don't know if that was something she thought of as her own and then was in like absorbed into Chad's theology. It was mentioned in a document that was recently released So that may have been hers. Of course, I'll have to say, like, what woman doesn't want to take her garments off? (laughs) You know, so there probably are plenty who do. But then does that answer your question? Yeah, no, that's great. That's great. Keep going. I didn't mean to interrupt the timeline. No, that's fine. So let me find my place here. Okay, so as... So she started reading Julie Rose books after Chad published Julie. 
And some people then described Lori as becoming obsessed, quote unquote, with these books, as well as with Chad's fictional apocalyptic series, which he later reported had not been just fiction, but in fact, based on his own near-death experiences and visions. So physically, Lori was far from Chad at that point because she was living in Hawaii and he was in Rexburg, Idaho. Um, Lori and Charles and their kids moved back to Arizona at the end of 2017. And meanwhile, the first Preparing a People conference happened in Rexburg, Idaho in July of 2017 at which Chad Daybell spoke and Julie Rowe also spoke, gave a short speech. A key phrase for both preparing a people and a vow, a vow being the web forum where Chad and Julie first met, is, quote, like-minded people. And like-minded people are people who are seeing signs and they're preparing temporarily temporarily and spiritually um, for the troubles that are going to come and for the second coming of Christ. Um, they believe in these near-death experiences and visions that lay members of the church have, that these are informative and just as important as anything a prophet, you know, the prophet of the church could tell you about how to prepare for what's to come. And they're kind of finding a way to all meet together and to spur each other along on this path. Often they consider themselves what they would call awake, and they call other people who don't follow these same things asleep. And often it will be one spouse who is awake, as they would say, and the other spouse who is asleep. A lot of talk of how to get your spouse on board with prepping. One person wants to drain their 401k and the other doesn't want to, and one wants to move to Rexburg and the other doesn't. And so this can lead to the deterioration and breakup of marriages following by repartnering with a spouse who is more like-minded, the word they like to use. So following that July 2017 Preparing a People Conference, over the next year and a half, all of these people were kind of coming together and meeting each other. They would have go to these conferences that would be centered on some of the topics we've already talked about, like energy healing, multiple mortal probations, um, piercing the veil, second comforter experiences that have a root in almost all of these have roots in early Mormon theology that has either fallen out of favor or never was developed fully within the mainstream church. And they kind of come back to it. It's not publicly known exactly when Lori and Chad met in person for the first time. But by October 2018, they had met and were corresponding by email. Um, They both likely attended the Preparing a People conference in St. George in October 2018. And that was quickly followed by another Preparing a People conference in November 2018 in Mesa, Arizona. According to information later shared with law enforcement by Melanie Gibb, who was one of the people that Lori became friends with through preparing a people and eventually did a podcast with, before meeting Lori, Chad had received a vision from Mathani, who is one of the three Nephites. I don't know how you pronounce that. Mathani. Anyone have a guess? Your guess is as good as ours. <laughs> Yes, he's named by name in the Book of Mormon, but not named specifically as to whether he's one of the three Nephites. But according to Melanie, she says Chad received a vision from him, one of the three Nephites who are translated beings, that a special lady would come into his life. And this lady there then was Lori. So they were both married to living spouses at the time. But this information from Melanie Gibb, the friend, claims that they, Lori and Chad were sealed to each other in an upper room of the temple by Book of Mormon prophet Moroni. It's unknown if that means a mortal person that they consider to have been Moroni in a past probation or if this is all spiritual or if just a lot of unknown details based on their theology. So then Lori began the podcast 
She describes how in the introduction, the first episode of Time to Warrior Up, which was with Jason Mao, Melanie Gibb, and Lori Vallow, she says, and I'm going to quote from Lori here, I feel like that I work for the Lord. I feel like I've turned my life to him from circumstances that have happened to me in my life. And I ask him who he wants me to meet who he needs me to go to, and what he wants me to do. And I was sent to the temple on a certain day to get a message from someone, and in walked Jason Mao. So that was kind of, um, basically, she met Chad and got into all of this through Jason, but it kind of shows that she had kind of developed her own theology of where she was feeling very led by the spirit in what she should do. Reports say that she was attending the temple every day, sometimes twice a day. So they considered themselves gatherers and people who needed to find other people who would be into this. This is where things really ramp up. Chad and Lori Meet Chad goes to Mesa in January of 2019 to record podcast with Lori. Shortly after that, Lori tells her husband, Charles, this is according to Charles in his divorce filings, that she's a translated being. She's lived on so many planets. She was married to the brother of Jesus in a past probation. Um, Charles has been taken over by a dark spirit and... She's going to kill Charles and has an angel to help her dispose of his body. Charles tried to get mental health help for Lori at that time. He tried to enlist her family to help him, but she had made accusations to her family that Charles had been unfaithful. So he was not successful in securing mental health help or any help from them. It's unknown. There are some indications that some members of her family follow some of this theology as well. They separated and she went to Hawaii. He filed for divorce and couldn't find her to serve the papers on her. It was because she had actually gone to Hawaii with her daughter, Tylee, leaving JJ in Charles's care. Uh, She eventually reemerged back and they tried to reconcile. Charles had moved to Texas at that time. Lori and Tylee met up with him and JJ there, but... It didn't last long, and in mid-June 2019, she wanted to move back to Arizona, so Charles secured a rental home for her in Chandler, Arizona, where she moved with the children. It was in that home shortly after that, on July 12, 2019, that Charles was shot to death by Lori's brother, Alex, while Charles was visiting the home. Uh, Alex claimed he was acting in self-defense after Charles had become violent. It's not known during these months whether Lori and Chad had seen each other in person, but they were corresponding by email. So following this is when Lori moved up to Rexburg, where Chad was living at the time. Um, On October 2nd, 2019, there was a shooting attempt on her niece Melanie's estranged husband, Chad and Lori are shown on surveillance video of a storage unit in Idaho on that same day being physically affectionate with each other. This is before Tammy died. So their relationship had already started on October 9th. Chad's wife, Tammy was, there was some strange attempt where a man dressed in black tried to shoot at her. She thought it was a paintball gun. And then as Nathan said, on October 9th, 2019, she died. Shortly after her death, the Fremont County Sheriff's Office was contacted by police in Arizona with information that her death may have been suspicious, and surveillance was convinced on Lori at that time, shortly after that. Chad and Lori left for Hawaii at the very end of October or the start of November 2019, and they were married there on the beach on November 5th. Later in November, they returned to Rexburg. In the meantime, Kay Woodcock had been trying to check on her grandson, JJ's welfare. She hadn't heard from him for several months because Lori had cut off communication. Uh, She had finally learned of Lori's location and police were dispatched to Lori's home for a welfare check on November 26th. Alex and Chad spoke to police and lied to them about JJ's whereabouts. The next day, the police arrived with search warrants. So that was November 27th. 
Thanksgiving weekend 2019. That same weekend, Alex Cox, Lori's brother, was married to Lori's friend, Zulema Pestenis, in Las Vegas and took her last name. Melanie Boudreau, who was Lori's niece, was married to Ian Palowski the next day in Las Vegas. They had met in Rexburg earlier that month, apparently. The FBI was called to assist in the investigation, and it was eventually established that the last known sighting of JJ was September 23rd at his school, and that the last known sighting of his sister Tylee was September 8th in Yellowstone National Park. Uh, Chad and Lori flew out again to Hawaii in early December. On December 11th, Tammy Daybell's body was exhumed so an autopsy could be performed, and the next day on December 12th, Alice Alex Cox Pastanis died in Arizona. The Rexburg Police Department then announced publicly the case of the missing kids on December 20th, 2020. And I think you covered quite a bit more from there on your last episode about this, but through the month of January, search warrants were served. Eventually in late February, Lori was arrested in Kauai on charges of desertion and non-support of a child and of lying to police and asking another person to lie to police. And she waived extradition and returned to Rexburg, Idaho, where she is now facing these charges and the pre-trial has started. Okay. Is that, is that the timeline? Oh, and one more thing I forgot. Joe Ryan, Tylee's dad, actually passed away as well in April of 2018. Yeah, that's that's important, right? Why he's not looking for her. Right. She really has very little family left. So no one was sounding the alarm. Fantastic. I think we actually can go into a second episode. Are you guys okay with that just to have the discussion? Yeah, we just barely scratched the surface, I feel. <laughs> yeah, so why don't we we start here with the timelines and then our second part, we're going to get into the discussion of why this all matters and how it ties in together. Does that sound good? Good. The song you just heard is called My Disguise by Mikkel Douse. Her album is available for purchase on iTunes or Apple Music. Thanks for listening. <laughs>